Welcome to Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we find meaning and even a little bit of magic in the mess of life. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. I am so excited for you to meet Kendra St. Charles. She's a sales consultant and transportation victims advocate, but most importantly, she is a survivor. In my 30 years as a journalist, she is one of the most resilient people I've ever met. Kendra was a passenger on U.S. Air Flight 405 when it cartwheeled off the LaGuardia Airport runway, exploded into a fireball, and ejected her into the icy waters of Flushing Bay. There were 51 on board that day. 27 died. 24 lived. Kendra survived, and she's here to tell us how and to give us tips on how to be resilient when life comes crashing in on you. The survival skills Kendra learned back in 1992 can help us all survive and even thrive during this global pandemic. Kendra, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Regina, for having me. I've admired you since the day you let me in your living room all those years ago. I can't believe you remember that. That was, that was a difficult time for me. I, I can't imagine <laughs> you being that comfortable to talk. And I still remember your couch, your pillows, th- that room. I can still see it like a Kodak moment that was framed for me. Well, I worked, I worked hard for that, I will tell you. That was one of the things that really were, was difficult for me to, um, to kind of have this crash interrupt my life, so to speak. You know, I love that you say we all have crashes. And I thought of you right when this pandemic hit, because we all had a crash. Everybody in the world is it's somehow, whether it's financially or distancing from people you love. So I want to start your story. It's so, so powerful. I want to kind of break it up into pieces. Let's start with who you were before the crash. Tell us a little bit about your life. Paint a picture for us of who Kendra St. Charles was. Well, uh, first and foremost, I was a single mother. I uh, had gone through a divorce, never expecting to be single, and uh, had a a baby daughter at uh, a young age, too. So I hadn't really established myself with who I was. So I'd gotten into sales and um, had found some success and was really proud of the fact that I could have that house with a living room with the pillows and the basketball hoop was outside. And I was on a roll. I thought I was, I was finding my way and, and, you know, we all have our own little rhythm we get into. And for me, it was being in sales and being a mother and that I was really proud of and worked hard for. And before you got on that plane, your daughter was 16 and she was staying uh, with your brother while you were gone. My brother came and stayed at the house. Uh, yes. He was teaching school. And uh, he stayed for the weekend um, with her. She had just turned 16, yes. So you went to New York. Uh, you were selling eyeglass frames to doctors, and there was a, a conference, and you got really prepared. I, I think you bought a bunch of clothes for the trip. I did. I did. You have a great memory. I bought three of the most expensive suits I'd ever owned. And I, you know, I couldn't believe I'd done that and didn't really want to go to the trade show, to tell you the truth. I really was very content with being a mom and wearing my sweatshirts and jeans, kind of like I feel like I am now, but um, it it was just uh, an honor to be included with these other sales reps that were going to be there and have them uh, pay for my trip and my my hotel in New York City. So I thought I'd better stay on top of my game and go get new suits and be standing toe-to-toe with the reps from Boston and New York and and uh, women from Ohio tend to try to dress like New Yorkers so they don't think we're from like cow country in Ohio or something. That was really the truth. I really just wanted to be, fit in. So that's what I had done. And 
and was excited then to go and, and got there and, and worked and called home, you know, a couple times a day and checked on Tracy and, and uh, talked to my brother, Kevin, and uh, everything was going smoothly without me. It's funny how that works, too. <laughs> so it was a cold day. It was March 22nd. It was snowing. It was so bad. The flight from LaGuardia to, back to Cleveland Hopkins was delayed a bunch of times. And you finally yes. got on the plane. Tell us when you got on that plane about the seating arrangement. I, I, it still strikes me as uh, such a powerful two moments. I had been talking to another sales rep that would happen to be on the same flight. She was flying back to uh, Akron as well. And we'd been delayed so much and we'd just been chatting back and forth. Matter of fact, we actually shared a cab ride on the way to the airport. So when I got on, I went to sit in my assigned seat and there was a gentleman sitting there. And and so I said to the flight attendant, what should I do? And because that's what we do from the Midwest, we always ask permission. We're polite. (laughs) We're polite, right? So then, then she said, sit wherever you want. We've got some empty seats. And the man that was sitting next to my friend had seen us walk on together and talk. And he said, here, if you want to sit here, you can sit here. So I sat by the window and my friend sat, Sally sat next to the, uh, the aisle. There were just two seats. And um, we sat there and chatted for what seemed like an hour because the flight kept getting delayed and delayed. And they de-iced once. And then and it's pouring down snow. Tell us about the snow. weather. The snow, the snow was coming down as we know, living in the Cleveland area, it can snow. So here it is in New York, snowing and snowing. And as quickly as they were de-icing, I was by the window and I could see that the ice was forming on the window again. And I said to Sally, I said, I can't believe that they're, you know, they're going to let us take off in this weather. And then I told myself that they would never let us take off if it wasn't safe. I remember that distinctly. And um, the people behind me demanded that we be de-iced a second time because we've been sitting there so long. Because at that time, the de-icing was, you got de-iced at the gate, you went out, you waited in line behind eight aircraft is what I found out later um, before you take off. So five second de-icing, right before that happened, Sally said to me, do you want to change seats? And she and I ended up changing seats. So I went from what should have been my assigned seat to another seat and then switched right before we took off. And I had never forgotten that twice you didn't get your assigned seat and then you were in a seat and moved. And tell us about those two other passengers whose seats. Both, both Sally died and the man in my assigned seat died. And, and that randomness of life, uh, it's so powerful. Every time I get on an airplane, I got to tell you, I think of you and I just think of that moment of, of not knowing what is happening next and how you've just got to be so into your life and loving your life because it's this randomness. It is. It truly is. And um, when I first survived and realized that they both had died, it was, it was difficult for me. I have to tell you the survivor's guilt really took over. And imagine um, that. I mean, and not just in the whole plane in general, but specifically that seat was yours. That seat was yours. And there were moments afterwards where I thought I could have sat anywhere. You know, I was very uh, arrogant about it, and I'm sure I would have survived. And then when it got nightfall and the quiet and the stillness happened, I would realize how I came within inches of dying. It was it was difficult. I can't imagine. Do, do, is it still difficult? I mean, does it change in time? It does. I think it, it does change in time. I think, you know, for a long time, I, I thought, what, what did God save me for? then because he clearly had a plan 
and yet I realized it, it, it is, and it, it's the randomness. It doesn't matter where you're sitting. It matters that I lived and I need to live my life to the fullest, but that took years to come to. I bet. The other thing, when you said you had that, that little clarity thought that said, oh, they'll never let us take off if it's not safe. Is it hard now to trust that little voice? Because not that it was wrong, but, you know, sometimes we comfort ourselves. And like, how do you now comfort yourself knowing that like, well, that one time it didn't work. You know what I mean? Well, the people behind me took up the slack for that. Um, they, they are the ones that got us, um, you know, to be de-iced again. You know, I think we have to go with our instincts, so to speak, but we also have to put them in the context of the bigger picture. And that's what I've tried to do. That's interesting. Kind of, there is that small picture and then there's that grand overview that we really don't know why. We don't know the why. And maybe we never will. No. And, and, you know, I tell myself, let go, let God and live my life to the fullest because if it doesn't, then I want to know that I've lived a full life. And that's all any of us can do, I think. Well, I think you've lived yours quite full. Let's, let's talk about the crash and you're comfortable talking about that, that moment. I am. Okay. I am. So tell us about you, you you know, you've gone through the flight attendant showing you the buckling, the seatbelt, the, all the things we ignore, to be honest, most of us. Right. Right. I, so, I do even to this day sometimes. So, okay. So tell us what happens. So the plane, they, they go to take off and, and what's going on. So we get 40 feet up in the air and they clearly stalled the left engine. So the plane, the physical being in that aircraft and having it bounced around like a little toy, it dipped to the left and we did a slight maneuver to the right to get us to even out. And then it did a cartwheel uh, to the left. And did we you had, feel like you flipped over sort of? Like, how did you feel on the plane? Well, it clearly was out of, out of you know, out of balance, so to speak. Right. And the, the overhead bins ended up opening. Things were flying all over the place. It was chaos in a brief second. And then we did the cartwheel. What happened was the left wing got hit a storage unit coming down. It got ripped off. I was sitting on the left side. So what happened to me was I was actually ejected out of the aircraft, a seat and all, and um, remember the smoke, the fire, and then I don't remember anything from that. I was apparently knocked out unconscious and hit the icy cold waters of Flushing Bay, and I'd had no previous knowledge that there was even water around me, around the, you know, the runway or around the airport. I think in my mind, again, that we try to comfort ourselves. And I thought, oh, we're going to have to abort this takeoff. We'll just just lie down, you know, the downtown New York City. And here we are. But it, 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 it was fast. It was quick. It was frightening. And what I did was try to protect myself and put my head in my lap and hit some kind of a crash position, which I have no idea where that came from. It's, it's funny how those things work. But but clearly came to in the, in the cold water, the frigid cold water actually saved my life because I, you know, it cushioned me. It wasn't deep enough to, to, um, that I would drown, but I was stuck upside down in my seat acting as a flotation device. And I was able to unbuckle my seatbelt, rise to the top of the water that was maybe three feet uh, deep. Um, but it's nine thirty at night. So it's pitch black. The only lights I see are the flames that are starting to ignite off the jet fuel that's laying on top of the water. And I saw the lights from the runway, and that's what guided me out of there. 
I'm amazed that your seatbelt stayed intact, even though your seat <laughs> flew out of the plane. That's incredible. It's amazing. Uh, it, 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 I, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what happened. So literally almost drowned, freezing cold waters, was hypothermic. And it was still snowing. It was still, still snowing because I could feel the, the snowflakes hitting my face that had been burned, which I did not realize. But it felt like pinpricks all over my face. And I, and I do remember that. And, and, uh, and again, shivering, cold, got the seatbelt unbuckled, pushed the, the debris out of the way, and tried to dodge the flames that would ignite regardless of what the, you know, what I did. It was going to ignite because the wind would shift and it would ignite the jet fuel. So I got to the, the edge of the runway and climbed up the rocks that were slippery, that were icy, that were greasy, that were oily, and saw a man standing in front of me. And I have no idea who that man was. And that's he another part I remember, you, the, the stranger, you've never identified him. No, no. And I tried to reach out to all the survivors of the plane crash, and no one saw me that night. So but, tell me um, what happened that moment again. This, he said, he's standing there. I'll never forget that. You know, he, he had his back to me, and he saw me. And most of my clothes had been ripped off and I'm freezing to death. And he says, just lean on me and you'll be okay. And I'll never forget that. Then I pass out because I can't breathe. I don't have any oxygen. One of my ribs that had been broken punctured my right lung. And with that, I went down. So so that's your last memory of being in the bay. It, do you, did you hear any sounds? Were, were people screaming? Was, was there any noise? I didn't, I don't, I, no, I didn't, if I did, I just, I just focused on survival, getting out of there and getting home to my daughter. And that moment, did you, did you kind of decide I'm going to make it or did you do, is there a moment where, you know, like I've got to choose life here? I don't know. I'm curious. That was later in the hospital. That was about being hooked up to a ventilator. Uh, that's when I had some, I had the bigger picture at that moment, but not, not getting out of the water. It was just get out get warm, uh, get away from this fire, get away from this water, just find someone to help me get out of there. So you go from that moment to the next thing. You, tell us about you wake up and you're in a hospital. Yes, I wake up in, uh, in a hospital uh, on a ventilator, though, so I couldn't talk. And I remember the emergency room doctor trying to get me to give him my name and my telephone number um, because he wanted to call my daughter. And I didn't put any of that together at the time. Uh, they transferred me from the first hospital, Elmhurst, to New York City Hospital Cornell in New York City, which had a burn unit. So they transferred me there. And um, I remember a couple people coming in. They brought a priest in. And I'm in and out of consciousness. They brought a rabbi in. They brought clergy in. Every So I don't know if they were giving me last rites, what they were doing. But I remember thinking, well, I've got all bases covered. That's good. That's, you know, that's, <laughs> Jewish, that's, Catholic, well, non-denominational. <laughs> I wasn't, yeah. I, I felt okay. I mean, although the nurses told my family when they came in, keep her calm, keep her quiet. We don't want her to um, have a heart attack. So that was their concern. So you had second and third degree burns of your body. You had severe yeah. smoke inhalation, so your lungs were damaged. Yes, only one lung was working, too. The one that was punctured was not working. That was their critical concern. So you were on a ventilator for three days. And at, some, at any point, did you think you weren't going to make it? 
I did. I, um, my brother came in probably on the second or third day and brought a clipboard. And I, my hands were, every finger was burnt. Every finger was individually wrapped. But I could take it in between my fingers and write. And I said, am I going to be okay? And I still have that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I still have that. So it um, it was scary. I mean, there's no two ways about it. They kept me pretty sedated, I think, too, to try to get me just to let that lung start to work. Just it wasn't working. So. So at what point did you kind of have that decision where I got it? I got to make it here. I mean, do you have do people have that moment? I've heard that when people are in a real serious trauma, they almost like they decide I'm going to survive. There's like a moment of clarity. Well, I say this and smile because I know I'll laugh. I'll laugh and then I'll cry. But my ex-husband was brought in the next morning with my daughter. And the two of them came into the room together. And he had been told by the social worker there to try to keep me calm and tell her whatever you have to tell her to make, you know, make her feel calm, basically. So I'm, I'm laying in the hospital bed. You know, my daughter comes in, who's the joy of my life, and uh, my ex-husband, who I have a good relationship with. But... Um, he said, honey, don't worry about a thing. I'll take good care of Tracy. And, you know, the joke today is that I thought at the time, take care of Tracy. He thinks I'm going to die. Oh, no, no, no. Because <laughs> he couldn't take care of a dog. And he knew it. It was the, you know, it was like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm sure that's what sparked my spunk. And I just decided that I had to live and take care of her. I love that. Spark your spunk. Oh, well, because I think you, it's like a pilot light and it starts to go out sort of. And that was the moment that you turned the flame up, you know? No way. I wasn't going to have it. You're absolutely right. I had to I had to do that. It was a long survival. You had to have, I mean, there was a lot of things you had to learn to be able to do again when you're burned, you know, especially with your hands. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I struggled so hard to be independent and to be a successful sales rep. And all of a sudden... I couldn't take my, I couldn't bathe myself. I couldn't address myself. I couldn't cook for myself. Uh, it was, it was hard, but that's part, as I look back now, that was part of the gift. I learned to be a gracious receiver, but I really had to learn to be a gracious receiver. What that means, a gracious receiver. That's beautiful. It, it, it was hard. It wasn't beautiful at the time, but it, <laughs> it, it was let, allowing people a chance to be givers so I didn't have to be the giver I shouldn't always have to be I shouldn't want to be the giver all the time but allowing people to be the givers and allowing me to be in the receiving role was was part of the learning process for me was part of the gift of the struggle and you had to ask for help. I mean, I remember you couldn't know, you couldn't even open the door. You couldn't turn a door on. No, I mean, that powerlessness must have felt, well, how did it feel to feel that powerless that you can't even? It felt horrible. Yeah, it was terrible. It was frightening. You know, I'd never been fearful. Yeah. I really wasn't. And now I couldn't even turn the TV on that they seem to have all these advertisements for flying, fly the friendly skies. And, this, and it would be like, they're not friendly. No, right. Let me tell you a few things. They weren't friendly, but that was, that was very scary for me. You know, I trusted them to de-ice. I trusted them to do it right. I trusted if they couldn't have gotten that plane off the ground, they shouldn't have tried. Those people shouldn't have died that night. I shouldn't be scaring my daughter and I couldn't wear my high heel shoes. You know? that, was I that, was, 
devastating when you're five one. It's devastating. So, yeah. <laughs> That's half your height. <laughs> but it was my life. It was my life that they had almost taken away. And that really, really made me mad. So instead of being scared, I got angry. Do you think that anger helped save you? I do. I do. I really do. I think you have to, you know, again, maybe spark the spunk. That might be my new motto. I hadn't thought of it. <laughs> I think that's a great term for you, spark the spunk. <laughs> so you had physical recovery. Did you go through um, physical therapy? Like for your, I did. Your scarred fingers? I had to, for, for my hands, I had to go. For my lungs, I had to go. And for the burns, they were very concerned that the burns not, not get infected, that they heal properly because I was only there for three weeks. And they, you know, I just, that's like almost a month, Kendra. I know it was, it was, but it was, you know, in intensive care for the first week in step down unit the second week, you know, and and they divided it up, which I mean, I, they did it right. I couldn't have ended up in a better hospital, a better facility. And the only reason they let me discharge me and let me go home is that we had the burn center at Akron Children's Hospital in my backyard. And if I'd had any problems, I was to go there. So how did you get home from New York? Um, drove. Uh, they sent a limousine and my brothers and I drove home. They came with me. So. Um, so so you leave there, your whole life is upended. You go home and you've got, you've got the long physical recovery. Tell me about the kind of the psychological recovery, the whole sense of like one, you've got this incredible survivor's guilt or, and in the loss of a friend and the loss of the other people, how do you wrap your hands around all of that? Plus just your own body's all changed now. Well, I had, I had a good group of girlfriends too, that came over and, you know, they helped cut up the fruit baskets that were sent and did some <laughs> things and got me dressed and, oh, and, you know, didn't, they were great besides my family that, that was there for me. But my real, um, sorrow was that I thought when I came home, everything would be normal again. You know, I would be in my cushy little house and, and just my little cocoon. And I soon found that I, that I wasn't. And um, my brother Keith is the one that got me to go to a a post-traumatic stress disorder specialist, uh, a psychologist that worked for the, for the city of Akron that saw all these horrific sites after a policeman or a fireman had seen an accident or been in it. And so she really, She's really the one that emotionally wrapped her arms around me and got me to get through the first, you know, the, every initial stage and, and, and every chapter after that. But um, I will tell you that there was, a, there was a day I went to see her and I shuffled in, a, in my tennis shoes and I said to her, you know, I, I can do some things now that I couldn't do. I'm starting to be able to dress myself. I'm sleeping a little better at night but am I ever going to get rid of this heaviness that's on my heart? I really felt that heavy heart. I mean, I could laugh, but I wasn't really giggling. I was smiling, but I wasn't, you know, I just didn't have it. No. And, and she said to me, and I'll never forget this. She said, you know, from her experience with dealing with people that survive, that most of them come back to the level that they were before the accident, before the trauma. She said, some don't, but some even soar from it. She said, Kendra, you will soar. Oh my God. Those words are so powerful. She gave me hope and that's what I needed. And I walked out of there and I could have had my high heels on. I felt like, you know, I just, <laughs> you didn't need I, just them. You were flying. <laughs> I was flying. I thought, you know what? I'm going to be okay. 
Oh, that is beautiful. That's the truth. You will soar. You know, I, I was in counseling many years ago for a lot of childhood issues, and I had a counselor who spent a year. It was a lot of work. And she said, you know, you go from being a victim to a survivor, and then you become a thriver, and, and then you become a warrior, yeah. and you become a fighter. And you did that. You were a victim of that crash. You survived on so many levels, and then you thrived. But soaring took you to be a warrior. Tell us about how you became a warrior for other people in the airline industry. It was uh, through a story that you had written that got picked up uh, from some people in Pittsburgh. So Pittsburgh had a crash about a year afterwards, and they remembered reading the story that you had written. And they contacted me. And back then, we didn't have fax machines, or it wasn't, the internet wasn't accessible to find a survivor. Well, they tracked me down and asked me if I would come to Pittsburgh and talk to the family group. So everybody on that Pittsburgh flight, 427, they were killed. It was a horrific, and it was shortly within a year or so after mine. And I can remember driving over to Pittsburgh thinking, you know, I'm a big Cleveland Browns fan. I'm not real happy about going into Pittsburgh, but I'm doing it. And it was snowing. It was, it was lightly snowing. And I thought you've got to put this all behind you. This you're feeling better. You're back to work. You've got to, you know, just let this go. And I got there and I talked to the family group and I'd never really spoken in front of a group before. They just wanted to know what to expect, what the airline was going to be. These were the families of the people who died. Families of the people that died. Okay. Right. And afterwards, a young girl who was my daughter's age came up to me and she said, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you coming to talk to us. My dad died on that crash. Oh. And I asked her how old she was and she was my daughter's age. And I thought, but by the grace of God, go I. Who would have been there? to comfort my daughter. So it, it stuck with me on the way home. I thought, whatever you have planned for me, let me be your messenger, but please guide me. And I got a call from some other people that were going to talk to the NTSB chair, Jim Hall. And he put together a task force uh, to come up with recommendations on how families should be treated after a plane crash when they lose a loved one how survivors should be treated and brought the airline uh, leaders, government leaders from the Department of Transportation, NTSB, agencies I didn't even know existed together. And there were 22 of us that came together to come up with recommendations on how to best fit the needs um, and take care of compassionate care for the victims of airline disasters. And the I was NTSB is the National Transportation Safety Board. Yes. Yes, it is. And who so, is an agency that uh, their whole whole primary job is to find the cause of a crash, determine the probable cause of an airplane crash or uh, a train crash or a, a huge accident on the highways, any transportation. But w because of the law that I testified for, they now have a role in family assistance. So there's a whole department within the National Transportation Safety Board for family assistance following an accident of any kind. So I love um, it. You testified in Congress. You encouraged the passage of the Aviation Disaster Family Assistance Act of 1996. Let me talk about yeah. being a warrior. You could have just went home on your couch with your pillows and just snuggled in and said, I'm done. You know, I just want to live a nice, small, quiet life. Yeah, I got the call. I went. I was, <laughs> I was pretty. Um, and now looking back, I mean, it, I'm, I'm honored. I'm, I'm uh, touched. I'm, it's, you know, it's a huge, huge thing I'm very proud of. 
It's pretty amazing. So let's talk about some of the lessons. I mean, your story is so deep and powerful. We could go on for a long time, but let's get to some of the lessons. One, you talked about the idea of slowing down. You were such a type A person, you know, and now you've kind of gotten to be more of a mindful, be more in the moment. Yes. Uh, it's, it's the balance for me. It's the struggle to find the balance. And I think that's what I have to tell myself. If I get too stressed out over something, I go to the gym. I'm a big believer in, in when the, when the mind's overloaded, do something with the body move. And, uh, whether it's a walk at the Cyberling nature center or, you know, a, a bike ride with my grandsons or something physical like that, I just need to get out and, and do that. Just hearing those words, grandsons, like you're here to be a grandma. Is that the coolest thing? Wow. It is pretty cool. It's, um, uh, it sure makes you look through the, the, their eyes and see the world a little differently for me. It anyway, it does. You know, the other thing you had talked about, um, once when you were interviewed, the small acts of kindness that matter. Sometimes we don't realize the small acts matter. Mm-hmm. You have saved cards that people sent you all those years ago. And I still have them. You still have them. Tell us about the napkin you got on the Delta flight. Oh, wow. um, I was having a hard time flying that day, as a matter of fact. And and, uh, I can't remember what it was that that I asked the Delta um, flight attendant for something. Yeah, you were struggling and you told her why you were struggling. That you had been in this crash. And I, so most, so when I fly, I don't usually tell the whole story today. I mean, it's, I, I do it pretty well unless the weather's an issue or there's a mechanical issue. And I ended up telling the flight attendant that I've been a plane crash survivor. And um, he asked if there was anything he could do for me or get for me. I think he got me some water, maybe he got me chocolate. And he came back and on the little napkin that they give you on the air flight, when they give you a little thing of water, he had written a note to me to saying, uh, you know, we're here for you. If there's anything we can do to make you calm, you know, please let us know. And it was, it was that small act of kindness he did for me. I still have that on my desk in my office. You know, those things I think are precious. Yeah. And we don't often think enough to do it. Right, right. And I, and I think that's so important in this time of global pandemic that these small moments can maybe give somebody the hope to get through one more day of whatever their personal crisis is through this. I also, um, there was an opportunity for me to go back to New York City within a couple of years after the passage of the Family Assistance Act. I'd spoken at a, a symposium and met a gentleman from the Port Authorities at LaGuardia Airport. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about people that I want to, I want to see. On. <laughs> so when I, I told him, I said, if I ever get back to New York, could I call you and could I thank the, the first responders? Somebody saved my life that night. There was a first responder that got to me, that got me to the hospital in the snowstorm. They were in bad weather and he got me um, to the hospital. So um, I got to New York. I went to the, to the airport, which was where their, you know, their uh, offices, so to speak. And there were 15 first responders from the night of the crash. And I stood up in front of them and said, I just want to tell you how much I, appreciate what you did. And, and, you know, I went on rattling on about nothing and they're all still standing in detention. And I said, you know, because of what you did, I got to see my daughter graduate from high school and, and, you know, so many things that I've gotten to do that I, I'm, 
I, I just can't imagine. I said, can I ask you, can we go around the room and you tell me what you were doing that night? And, you know, you risked your lives. All of us on that plane crash, they pulled people out of the wreckage. They did, you know, that plane blew the up. Flames in the shards. Yeah, right? loaded. And, and they were out there risking their life for, for us. And I was just in awe of that. And uh, we did. We went around the room. And afterwards, the, the gentleman came up to me and said, I just want to tell you what you did tonight. We have a therapist that comes in and debriefs them after an accident. What you did today was so far above and beyond that. Um, he said, as a matter of fact, I have a class of new students coming in. Would you come in and tell them your story? <laughs> but, but you know, that I realized the value of, of healing through helping. And that's what I would had been doing. So all along the ways to try to be kind, it, it, it comes back so much, too. And, and I'm so grateful. And today, what the first responders are going through, I'm just in awe of them. And I wish there was something more I could do to show them my, my gratitude. Maybe that's something that you'll inspire us to do that, that moment that you gave them, maybe we can give that moment, whether it's to the people of the ICU to clap outside the hospital, to send a little gift, whatever, some small gracious moment. Yes. I, uh, I look forward to that. Well, Kendra St. Charles, I want to thank you for sharing your story. Tell us about your website. You have a website and you also give talks. Hopefully you can get that back on track once this crisis ends. But tell us how to find you and reach you. So I have a website that, that I need to work on too, which I should be doing now. It's called Crashing Into Life. I've started a book. I need to finish that. Uh, hopefully that'll get done during this um, pandemic. It's just that you know I've spoken to hospital people and talk to them about small acts of kindness and doing things to, to make the patients feel more comfortable and what a difference that can make. Um, and transportation people, airline people, I, I feel like I've pretty well covered and, and trained, and I think they're doing a good job today. And fortunately, we haven't had any crashes, so that's the really good news. Really happy that the NTSB is headed by uh, Robert Sumwalt. He's a, a grand man and, and good to have for a family assistance kind of person too. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my life. It was, a, it was a life worth saving for sure. You make it that way too. I'm very happy that our paths crossed. And, oh, and like I said, it, I was in such a fragile state when I first met you. It was, I didn't think I'd ever be whole again. Oh. I never thought I'd be whole again. And, uh, and that's and how I, a lot of us are feeling through this crisis. Will the, will the world ever be whole again? Will my family, will my financial pack, whatever. I think that you have really showed us that there is an arc, you know, and we're not at the beginning. We're not at the middle. We're nowhere near the end, but we can get through this. Hard to see now. Yeah. Just as it was hard for me to see my healing. Yeah. I, I just wanted my life to be normal again. I wanted it to be simple again. And I have to say that it took a while before I realized it was a new normal. And then the new normal became the normal. It just became the normal. <laughs> That's beautiful. The new normal becomes the normal. I've it never does. That. That's it great. Really, it really, well, it, it, it does. So. That's beautiful. Well, my biggest takeaway today, Kendra St. Charles, be a gracious receiver. It's hard for me to receive. I'd much rather give because I feel like receiving makes you vulnerable or it makes you feel vulnerable, but it helps that person feel that they matter. So thank you for that. And I want to close with your answer to this question. Kendra, what's the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? I think for me is I I get up, I show up. 
I get up, I allow myself to be vulnerable and I make a list the night before and whatever that list tells me to do, then I can just do. Sometimes I do it. Sometimes I don't, but just show up. Just show up. Thank you so much, Kendra. That was just beautiful. Thank Thank you, Regina. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.